Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. I realize we're way closer to the end of the season than we are to the beginning, but I also know we've got a lot of new listeners, so I'll say it again. If you don't have a copy of the rules, drop by your local game or bookshop, or if those aren't options, you can buy a copy from the Modipius Entertainment website, modiphius.net. And I've mentioned this a couple of times before, but it bears repeating. If you buy a physical copy, Modipius has a code for a free PDF copy. So you're basically getting two copies of the book for one price. All right, I don't have any old business to cover this week, so let's jump right into the build and start recapping what we did last week. We picked up last week with the group at the bottom of the stairs to the bunker entrance they'd found the previous week. They picked the door they needed to get in, dealt with the protectrons and laser turrets, and moved deeper into the facility. They came across some abandoned offices, but didn't find anything of value in them. Moving along, they had to deal with some Mr. Gutsy robots to get deeper into the facility. They did that, then had to deal with a couple of assaultrons before they could access the inner office. They got in there and had to do multiple hacks on the main computer. One hack provided them with information concerning Garson Tactical's operations. They also got information that hinted at a special program that they'd concocted. Another hack got them that information, which was that Jessica Denman had taken the entirety of the best personnel she had and had their consciousness into synth bodies. One final hack got them the information on the program that could be activated to cause the synth to self-destruct. The question we left the build on was whether the group would activate the program, and if they did, how many hours would they set it for? So let's pick up there. The group has that decision to make, and we'll build this out with the two options they've got. We'll start with the idea of activating the program for self-destruct. Now, looking at this honestly, the group would probably set the time for at least two hours, since it would give them time to get word to the Pacificus to disengage any Brotherhood members from the Garson Tactical Groups, and to keep an eye on the perimeter to keep possible civilians that could get caught in a crossfire out of the way. Now, it's also possible that they set it for a single hour and hope the plan can work quickly. If this is what they do, skip ahead to see how it works. The other option they've got is to not do it immediately and radio to the Pacificus to let Elder Sanvar know about it. They could also choose to lock the area down and physically return to the Pacificus to confront Jessica Denman about it if she's still alive. So let's look at both of those sub possibilities. Contacting the Pacificus and speaking to Elder Sanvar, she'll give them attaboys for downloading the info from the system. She'll also ask for a few minutes to confer with her officers before making a call on starting the program. She'll contact them back and give them the okay to start the program with a one-hour timer, as none of the Brotherhood are currently engaged with Garson Tactical, and the word will be sent for them to avoid doing a head-on confrontation, but to keep innocent civilians out of their path at all costs. If this option was chosen, skip ahead to the result, which we'll get to after we've covered the last option we've got. Should Jessica Denman still be alive and the group decides to secure the facility and return to the Pacificus to confront her, when they call the ship to let them know the plan, Sanvar reports she'll send a couple of Brotherhood members to physically secure the facility while the group deals with Denman. Their vertebrate will swoop in shortly after, drop off the security, and pick up the group. It'll only take a few minutes to get back to the Pacificus, and once back on board, they can head to Denman's cell. Now, if they were able to get her to give them the location earlier, she'll be in a much more conversational mood with them when they get back. If they didn't, it's going to work like it did for the first encounter. They're going to have to tell you what they're saying and how they're saying it, 
And sympathy and or empathy needs to be shown. And then it's a charisma plus speech role, difficulty five to get her to open up. Now, if they got her to talk earlier, drop the difficulty for this to three if they came in like they did before and use compassion of some type. And like we've done to this point, they need to tell you what they're saying. If they come in to accuse or to be tough on her, she's done. She's not talking with them regardless of the role. So at that point, they can say whatever they want. If they get to have a conversation with her, she'll ask if the program has already been run. Now, I know the group could activate the program, then come in to speak with her again. So again, we're going to do it both ways. Not activating the program seems to be a relief to her, and she will note to them that, I realize you have no love for synths, but the memories they have are those of the actual human beings that donated to the program. Granted, there are some who would call that barbaric, but all advancements in science have been disregarded and attacked at some point. These men and women, and I still see them as men and women, have the potential to be so much more than they are, and self-destructing them takes that opportunity away. Now, the group's probably set on activating the self-destruct, but Denman offers them a compromise. If the group will agree to not activate the self-destruct, she'll provide them with access to a program she personally wrote and installed into the synth interfacing that would allow for her to remove the combat and aggressive nature of the synths, just in case they decided to turn on her. What she offers in return is the location Paladin Zane has been using as the base of operations for the ground forces for her group of the Brotherhood of Steel. Her reasoning for this is, if my plan isn't going to succeed, why should hers? And when she says that, it's pretty obvious she feels like Zane betrayed her in some way. We'll get to the program she gives them a little later because we've still got some build for the other options to get through. And we'll also get to Zane a little later on. If the group has activated the program and is now speaking with her, she's got nothing to give them, regardless of how their previous interactions went. She'll just tell them, you killed hundreds of men and women that could have been rehabilitated and saved. Their blood is on your hands. At that point, Denman is out of the equation moving forward, no matter how much the group wants to hit her up for information. So let's talk about what happens if they activate the program, regardless of which point they activate it. And if Denman's out of the equation already, they're going to probably do it. And they'll certainly do it if they speak with Sanvar and she gives the okay. After they activate the timer, they will start getting reports from around the city of different Garson tactical folks just absolutely breaking into mayhem destroying things, breaking things, shooting at people. Brotherhood of Steel members will do the best they can to keep the mayhem to a minimum for as long as possible. Then when the appointed time on that timer hits, they're going to get reports of a number of explosions that happen around the city simultaneously. Now, some of those explosions are going to be larger than others since some of the synth teams might be a little bit larger. The reports will come from bystanders who've witnessed it and they report it to Paladin Cook and her team as they make their way to confirm that the program actually worked. So, Garson Tactical is now officially off the board. Granted, the group thought that once before and it turned out to be wrong, but I'll tell you so you know they are completely off the board. All right, I realize we're sort of jumping back and forth here, and I realize we're spending a lot of time on this particular piece of business, but I wanted to make sure we had it about as covered as we could before we get into the next mission for the group. So with that, let's look at what happens if the group gets the program from Denman. It can actually be run on the systems on board the Pacificus, but as they should, the tech officers want to check it for potential viruses since it requires them to gain access to Denman's personal system on the ground. They run their checks, they sign off on things being good, and then they allow the group access to a monitor to see what they're dealing with. 
There's a file they see in addition to the command to execute the program. Opening the file, which we both know they will, they read the following. I'm not 100% sure I can trust Zane and her zealots. So I built in a failsafe that we can use in case she turns on us. I apologize for not telling you about it, Stephen, but I needed to make sure you'd do what I asked you to do. And I was concerned that if you knew the entire truth, you could be captured and tortured by Zane since I believe she'd go after you if she couldn't get to me. The failsafe is a program that will activate a subroutine I coded into the synth processors we're using as the brains, for lack of a better word, for our new soldiers. Once activated, all aggressive behaviors and military knowledge will be wiped from the brains and our personnel will be basically pacifists, or at the very least, they won't be on the hunt for others. It also has a subliminal suggestion built in for them to remove and dispose of any Garson gear that they have on their person and fade into the background until things die down, at which point they can become productive members of society. I'm not giving you access to this program. And it's not about me trusting or not trusting you. Again, if Zane gets to you, she can and will torture you until you give up any and everything you know about me and our people. So for now, this has to be my responsibility and mine alone. Jessica. The group might assume that Stephen is Dr. Stephen R. Dan, and they would be correct. If they decide to check records concerning the good doctor, they find a report from Cook from the same period of time they kidnapped Victor and tried to kidnap Cook herself. She reports that the day prior, Dr. R. Dan was found dead, and while there was no sign of violence, the death was noted by the doctor who examined him as suspicious. If the group thinks about it, it might have happened after they left Zane at the dome and returned to their base. They might have had enough time to pull it off, but things would have to have happened pretty quickly. But if they trust Cook, and they still have no reason not to, they know her information tends to be solid, so it sounds again like somebody is off the board. So they can activate the program at this point if they decide to. If they do that, reports start pouring in almost immediately from bystanders that Garson personnel were observed stripping out of their uniforms, dropping their armor and weapons, and running away as quickly as possible, dressed in only undergarments, if that. Since they appeared to be abandoning Garson tactical, the public seemed to be good at letting them go. A few of them did get picked off by especially annoyed townspeople, but the bulk of them got away and basically have disappeared. Again, Garson is now officially off the board. So, to put a bow on this particular section so we can move on, let's summarize. Either the group activated the original program and self-destructed the synths, or they activated the deprogramming program and the synths left the fight. Obviously, if Denman is either off the board because she's dead or because she didn't want to talk to them, they know nothing about the deprogramming program, so they'll have used the self-destruct. And at this point, they know nothing about the death of Dr. Ardan, which means he'll probably be on their list of people they need to hunt down. Let's get Ardan off the board first. We can safely assume at this point that the group will report what they know about Ardan, and Sanvar will be the one to report the doctor's demise, so they can cross him off and move on. That brings us to Zane. If they got the location from Denman, they won't have to work for the information, so you can skip ahead. But working from the idea that the group didn't get it from her, we're going to have to make them work for it. Sanvar will request that the group meet with Paladin Cook on the ground for the next assignment, and she notes that she believes she knows where Zane and her crew are, and she thought you might want to get in on this one. The vertebrate they've been using to get around is ready to go by the time they get to the flight deck, and they can load on and head for the location. They didn't get it from Sanvar because she didn't have an exact location when she spoke with them, but the pilots tell them they're going to land just outside of Diamond Pass. 
well, they're going to hover about six feet off the ground near Diamond Pass, and they'll have to jump from there. Since most, if not all, of the group has power armor, that's not going to really be an issue. And if there's one or two in the group that don't have it, those who do can hold them to the drop. That's going to be our workaround for this, since landing space near the stadium is going to be really hard to find. Once they disembark, they're met by Paladin Cook. Now, she's alone, but they're going to get the feeling she's got people keeping an eye on her. And if they really look around, they'll see a few members of the Brotherhood keeping watch until they get close. Once that happens, they'll move on to other things. And Cook will meet with the group. She tells them that she's got the location that Zane's controlling the ground forces from. And she specifically requested the group for the assignment, since, as she points out, you owe them as big a payback as I do. What's going to surprise the group is the actual location, the old Kiel Auditorium. Now, if you'll remember back when we first described the Kiel Opera House, which is attached to the auditorium, we noted that the auditorium was heavily damaged and therefore unusable. Well, according to the reports Cook has received from various contacts she'd cultivated before the Brotherhood's return, several men and women in Brotherhood of Steel uniforms have been observed coming into and out of the rubble during odd hours of the day and night. And considering Elder Sanvar hasn't authorized a ground base for her group, the only possible answer is that it's the other side. It can be safely assumed that Zane is there since... Zane specialty is in ground-based combat. She's trained in multiple military styles, so she's adaptable to any situation. If they're running the troops on the ground from the ground, Zane's going to be the one handling it, so if that's really a base, she's going to be there. Now, the group will probably want to head straight there to get eyes on the situation, but Cook has a different idea. Victor reached out to me shortly before you landed. He's got intel that he says we can use, but he won't give it to me unless you're with me when I go see him. So that means a trip to the symphony hall. Now, should the group decide to do a quick walk by on the auditorium, since it is on the way, they'll see the rubble, though they won't see an obvious way in or out. They also should make a perception plus luck check, difficulty four. But they can only make that if they tell you they're scanning the perimeter for anyone watching. If they succeed, they notice several Mr. Gutsy robots doing their best to both hide behind things and keep an eye on the rubble. If they point it out to Cook, she'll note that neither Brotherhood group uses Mr. Gutsy's, so they're either Garson property or they're there on somebody else's behalf. For the record, and this should only be revealed at this point if they actually approach one, these robots are there on Victor's orders, and they've been instructed to speak to members of the group if approached. All they'll say if that happens is that Victor ordered them to keep watch on the rubble and report any activity back to him. Other than that, the group will need to go see Victor if they want more information. And if they decide to also do a pass of the Opera House on the way through, which there's no reason they shouldn't, there's only one thing they notice that's out of the ordinary. The super mutants they've seen on guard there before are not there now, and they've apparently been replaced with Protectrons. Other than that, things seem to be normal. Now, of course, the change in external security is going to probably give things away, but I'm sure the group's not going to pass up a chance to check in on Victor and see how his recovery's been going, especially since they haven't had a chance to do that recently. One thing that will surprise them when they get to the block the Fox Theater is on is that somebody is spending caps to have the place renovated. The work is being done by a combination of robots and humans, and a group recognizes a few of the people from Diamond Pass. Everybody's too busy to speak at the moment, so the group should really just move on. And play it that way if they decide to stop and ask what's what. Whomever they speak to will give them the look that says they do recognize them, but it'll be obvious that they're really busy with what they're doing and they don't have time to stop for chit-chat. All right, all right, let's stop stalling and get the group into the symphony hall. 
They make their way past the two super mutants with the miniguns at the door and run smack into Bruno when they get inside. He greets them, then suggests they head with him to Mr. Lee's office and notes that's where Victor's set up at present. The office is set up a little bit differently than it was the last time they were in here. There's been another desk brought in here, and it's off to the left as the group enters the room. It's not quite as big as Victor's old desk was, but he's figured out how to make it work. And he's sitting behind that desk as the group enters, and while he's dressed in an old white t-shirt and cargo pants, he's looking a lot better than he did the last time they saw him. All the color still hasn't seemed to return to his face, and it's obvious he's still weak and recovering, but it's nice to see him upright. Mr. Lee isn't in the office when they arrive, and Bruno sees himself out as quickly as possible once they're there. Victor nods to the group and thanks them for coming. As has been my usual recently, I'm not going to do this entire conversation word for word, but I'm going to give you the idea of what he says and let you decide how he says it. He'll thank the group for rescuing him and for getting him to Mr. Lee's. He'll ask what they've been up to in the meantime, and if they say anything about him giving the order to find Mackenzie Cook, he'll seem confused. He'll tell them he doesn't remember telling them that, and he would have no idea how he would have known to tell them that. Regardless of whether they ask him or not, Victor will tell them that he's the one rehabbing the Fox Theater. His primary reason for doing so is that he believes that continuing to do business solely out of Diamond Pass makes him responsible for the things that happen when people try to get to him. While he'll still live here, and while he'll rebuild the bar there and own it, he won't run his business from there. Moving forward, he'll conduct all of that business from inside the Fox, and he's having it heavily reinforced to prevent another issue like the one that took out the bar. When it comes to the information Cook reported to them, he'll note that at some point over the past couple of weeks, the previous owner of the Opera House appears to have disappeared, go back in your notes and see who your group had as the person running it, and another group has moved in. Based on the information he has from a few regular people he's got working there, it's the Brotherhood of Steel. And based on a little more information he was able to pay for and pry out of another person, Zane and her team were seen entering the building a day or so ago, and they have not left. So, while there have been reports of people going in and out of the rubble, it's his bet that Zane and her team can only go in and out through the main entrance due to their power armor. And he leaves them to do with that what they will. He will also say, I think we've reached a point where you're no longer employees of mine. We're partners. And as such, you have the right to pick and choose the jobs you want. And if I'm being honest, what you are doing for this group of brotherhood is the most important job you could be doing right now. He's got nothing else for him, so it's time for the group to strategize. Now, I can tell you this. If my group still had to take out Zane, they'd probably just mini-nuke and missile the entire building and let him get crushed in the rubble. The downside to a call like that is, as Victor noted, he's got people working there, and they most likely die in the explosion and or the rubble. So, that's going to lead to the most likely options, which are either to try to go in the front, which might be a full-on gunfight all over the place, or try to figure out how to get through the rubble and get inside. And working out all of that is going to take a lot of time, so we're going to cut things a bit short and the build here for this week. We're going to pick up in two weeks, and that's because next week I'm taking the week off from writing a new episode. That being said, I am giving you a little something to hold you over until the following week, and it's what I'm calling a Megasode. What I've done is taken the first three episodes of this season, put them together into a single show, since I know we have a lot of new listeners who might not have checked those out. Then... We'll be back the week after to pick up where we left off today. 
In the meantime, check out Role Playing History. This week, we're covering one shots and modules with a holiday flair. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. To check out the full line of games produced by Modifius, check out your local game shop or their website, modiphius.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license free, royalty free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. If you want to keep up with what we're doing without waiting for new episodes to drop, you can follow us all over social media. Check the info box for this episode or the website to see where we are. Next week, it's the holiday megasode, and if you're thinking about skipping it, don't. I might just be adding some new content to it as I pull it all together. That's next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.